Father, we thank you for this day of worship. We thank you that in this is love, not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us and you've given everything so that we might be right with you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, God, so much for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of help and hope for all who are in need, all who come to you. And Lord, we come to you today longing for you, longing to know you more and longing to be more like you. God, we pray that you would speak to us from your spirit and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Great to see everybody. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are today. If you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to get it open. And uh, we're going to be continuing our series, Jesus Messiah. And this morning, our topic is heart life. The blessings of the Messiah from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We've been talking over and over uh, in the last few weeks about the Gospel of Matthew. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here today. Uh, We typically go through books of the Bible, and this morning uh, we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we have the opportunity to continue right where we left off last week at the end of chapter 4 by talking about uh, Jesus and talking about the beginning of his ministry. Matthew is a bridge builder between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He writes to help us understand the Old Testament being a book of promise and the New Testament being a book of fulfillment, and ultimately, Jesus being the fulfillment of all of God's promise to bring the needed redemption and reconciliation that we need in our hearts and lives between us and God. Jesus truly is the Christ, Matthew has been saying, as he introduced Jesus and is beginning to help us understand the beginnings of his ministry and his message. He truly is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is to bring us back to God. And we've been talking about Jesus' ministry being one of a kingdom ministry. And in the last few weeks, we talked about how Jesus' message was primarily one of repentance and faith, how he called us to repent, to turn from our selfishness and our sinfulness, and to return to God wholeheartedly. And he says the kingdom of heaven is at near. The, the reign of God has come again to your heart, to your life, if you repent and believe. And today, we continue in the ministry of Jesus in one of the most famous uh, sermons that Jesus ever gave called the Sermon on the Mount. Y'all ever heard of that? And so, uh, right in the context of Jesus's proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we see that he goes to a mountain. The reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount is because he goes to a mountain and he sits down with his disciples and he begins to teach them. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. You all heard of that. And so today, if you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 5. I read from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. I'm so excited this morning to have the opportunity to teach the Beatitudes. Uh, you, you may remember, you may not know, about a year, year and a half ago, I actually taught through an entire series on the Beatitudes, taking them one by one by one in a series called Set Free. And so if you're going to be disappointed this morning that we're covering them all in one message, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that series. Um, I love these words of Jesus, and I have been so helped by them throughout my life. Um, and this morning, I want to really talk to you about the real, what is the real heart of what Jesus is saying. There's a book written by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that has been a real treasure in my life. It was first recommended to me by one of my seminary professors who said it was one of the treasures of his life. And it has been an incredible blessing to me personally. And I also uh, believe it could be an incredible blessing to you. But a lot of uh, my understanding and formation in Christ as it relates to these particular verses has come uh, from the help of others. And I'm glad to be able to share that with you this morning. But blessings of the Messiah, Matthew 5, uh, 1 through 12. I want to go and give you our core truth. And it's kind of long, so if you only want to write a little bit, I encourage you to take notes always on the Word. I would write what is in the yellow, the second sentence if you're listening online. But it's this. The Beatitudes give us a picture of the character of the one who has the reign of Jesus in their heart and in their life. The promise and the path to happiness is found in growing more in love with and likeness of him. I'll say it again. So when we get to the Beatitudes, we have a picture a picture of the character of the one who has the reign of Jesus. That reign that he's promised. He came announcing it's possible. Repent and believe. The reign of God can be established in your heart and life again. So what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are the picture of the character of one who has the reign of Jesus in their heart and life. Happiness. True happiness. The promise and the path of true happiness is found in growing more in love with and more in likeness of him. I want to briefly tell you what the Beatitudes are not, and then I want to make sure you understand what they are. The Beatitudes are not live like this to become a Christian. The Beatitudes are because you are a Christian, you will live like this. It's very important to understand. The Beatitudes are not saying, come and do, 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 do these things, and then you can become a Christian. Rather, they're describing one who has repented and believed, who surrendered to Christ, and has the reign of Jesus no longer in the kingdom of the world, but in the kingdom of God. And the reign of Jesus is in his heart or her heart and life. And this person is characterized by these things. 
And it's essential also that you understand that the Beatitudes require a gospel understanding. In fact, they lead us to a greater gospel understanding. I think it's here on the screen. We have to remember that the one who's teaching these things did not primarily come to be a teacher or to be an example, although he is both of those things. But he came to seek and to save the lost. He came primarily to save, to redeem, to make us new. He, the one who's teaching, Jesus, as he teaches these things to his disciples, knows that he is heading to his death. And he's heading there not because he deserved to die, but because all of the ones who he's teaching deserve to. He's heading there to make forgiveness of sin and to make it possible through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the possibility for you to have new life. It's only by the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and his work in you as you repent and believe in him that these things can even be possible. So these Beatitudes show us. They show us our need for a Savior. They show us what the working of the Holy Spirit looks like in our lives. These Beatitudes drive us to the gospel. And I think you'll see this again and again and again. So the Beatitudes, continuing the ministry of the kingdom of God, the perfect picture of life in the kingdom. Remember Jesus says, the kingdom is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. And so what he's teaching here is what it looks like within you when you truly experience the reign of God. So let's start. I want to start by making sure you understand what Jesus means when he talks about being blessed. So over and over, it says there in verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And every one of the Beatitudes starts with this word, blessed. And truly, one who lives and practices by the words of Jesus shall experience the blessing of God. But what we're talking about here is Jesus is essentially saying to the people, his disciples, they would have heard it in the context of happiness. This kind of person is a happy person. This kind of person is one who is to be envied. This is the kind of person who's fulfilled, who alone is deeply satisfied. Satisfied is the person. Other, other, in other words, over and over and over is what Jesus is saying. And it's really interesting because all of us know happiness is the one thing that I've never met anybody in the world that doesn't want to be happy. It drives so much of who we are and so much of what we want and what we do. The longing to be happy, it's a human experience. And yet, Jesus comes and he says, if you want to be happy, if you want deep fulfillment, lasting satisfaction, if you want to be happy, here is the way. This is Jesus' invitation for us to understand how our souls were created to live in communion and intimacy in the right rhythm with the living God. This is the promise and the path of true happiness. And all Christians who experience the reign of God in their hearts are to be like this. Starting in verse 3. We're going to walk through these together. and It's going to be a crash course. Are you all ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Fair warning. All that's going to be on the screen is the scripture. I'm not putting up all the notes from today because somebody would email me later and say, that was too much. I couldn't write it. It was just too fast. (laughs) 
So, write what you want. Don't blame me for it. It might be one of those messages that you need to really, it is one of those passages that you need to dwell on and meditate on and be serious about showing up in a small group this week to discuss and maybe a message that you listen to. But this morning, I pray that you will write notes on whatever God teaches you from his word. Verse 3, Jesus opens his mouth and he taught them and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there is a logical sequence to these Beatitudes, and it's fitting that this one is the first one. For there's no entry into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God apart from this one, being poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of any Christian. All of the other characteristics that Jesus will teach about are a result of this one. What does it mean? It's an emptying. All the other ones kind of manifest a fullness, but this one represents an emptying. We cannot be filled until we are first empty. Jesus himself teaches you can't put new wine in an old wine vessel unless you pour it out and you begin something new. There must be an emptying before there is a filling. There are always two sides of a gospel, a pulling down and also a raising up. The fall comes before the rising. Conviction must precede conversion. The gospel condemns before it releases. And this is essential Jesus' teaching here has nothing to do with money here. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that being poor in and of itself is necessarily a good thing. Poverty does not necessarily guarantee spirituality. Here, Jesus is speaking, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he is saying is, blessed are those who have this attitude toward himself. Yes, you can have wealth, and yes, you could have poverty, and there's things we could discuss with both of those, but here we're talking about what's happening in your heart. And there's a difference between people of the world, of the kingdom of the world, and people of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of the world, you see self-reliance, you see self-confidence, you see self-expression, you see believe in yourself. Good salesmen are taught the impression of confidence, the impression of insurance. Express yourself. Believe yourself. See the powers in yourself. Let the whole world see you. Like Elsa says, let it go. You can bring in the kingdom with your education and your knowledge all about you. Jesus says, for those who are truly of the kingdom of God, there's something new that is happening. See, you evaluate yourself not in the presence of men, but rather in the presence of God. Your chief virtue is not your big personality, but your big humility. You are not self-reliant. You are dependent. You are not self-confident. You despair. We do not preach ourselves. We do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim nothing but Christ. Even Paul, a man of great stature, great knowledge, great strength, says that he comes in great fear and in weakness and in trembling. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 says, For thus is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and I dwell also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Like Gideon, when the Lord sent an angel to him to tell him of the great things that he was going to do through him, he says, no, no, this is impossible. I am of the least of the clans of Israel. I am of the smallest of the families. Like Moses, who felt deeply unworthy at the task that was laid upon him, 
He was conscious of his insufficiency and his inadequacy. Like David who said, Lord, who am I that you would come to me? Like Isaiah who said, I am a man of unclean lips. Like Peter who said, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Like Paul I just described great education and great power. He could have felt sufficient, but instead he said, but I am insufficient. Why? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, just like Jesus himself. God himself who became a man, who took on the likeness of sinful men, who did not hold on to his prerogatives as a Godhead, but in Philippians 2 said he emptied himself, becoming A man living among men, making himself dependent upon God. In John 14, he said, apart from him, I could do nothing. Look at his poverty of spirit and his reliance upon God. So what does it mean? It means a complete absence of pride. It means a complete absence of self-assurance. It means a complete absence of self-reliance. It means that you really believe, Jesus, that apart from God, you can do nothing. And apart from God, you are nothing. Nothing in and of ourselves. Awareness of our nothingness in the face of God. And the question you have to ask is, am I like this? How do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself primarily in terms of other men and women? Or do you think yourself primarily in terms of the presence of God? What are the things that you say about yourself and you pray about and you think about yourself? Those who are poor in spirit pray, oh God, would you make me less and less and oh Jesus, would you grow more and more? How do you become more poor in spirit? It's not by looking at yourself, it's by looking at God. Reading his word is essential. Beholding God, looking at his law, looking at his holiness and his perfection and how he originally designed all things to be listening to his instructions and feeling the conviction over what he expects from us and how far we fall short. Contemplate standing in his presence, being there in the very presence of the holiness of God, looking at the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, even the disciples as they're with him and they watch him, they go, oh Lord, would you increase our faith? The more we look at him, the more we will become poor in spirit having nothing to do with self, like the old hymn singing, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will see the reign and the rule of God in heart and life, those who recognize poverty of spirit. Secondly, he says there in verse 6, blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world would look at a statement like this and say, this is ridiculous. Because all the world does is try to basically shun mourning. Act like it's something to be avoided. Forget your troubles. Turn your back on them. Do everything you can not to face them. It's bad enough without looking back. Be as happy as you can be which is why we get pleasure mania. It's why we get money mania. It's why we get energy mania. It's why we entertain ourselves to death, to numb it out of our lives. Yet the gospel speaks, Jesus speaks. But blessed are those who mourn. In fact, these are the only ones who are happy, who experience deep fulfillment 
This is not mourning in a natural sense, just like the death of someone, but it's mourning in spirit. Mourning in spirit. What is the ultimate explanation? It's a deep conviction of sin. And because of the depth of conviction of sin, there can be a depth, not a superficiality, but a depth of real joy. Like I said before, conviction must precede conversion. So many of us want joy apart from conviction, but there is a path to joy. And it looks like mourning in spirit. Look to the Lord. Look to Paul. Paul in Romans 7, feeling utterly grief-stricken about himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, in me dwells no good thing, to the point of tears. Romans 8, describing a groaning personally and a growing outwardly and in our world that can only be explained by this longing to be made new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, describing a burden that we have in this present self, in this tabernacle, desiring to be done with ourselves. See the progression. See, first, we look to God and we see ourselves and we recognize, poor in spirit, our utter helplessness and hopelessness. But then secondly, as we discover this quality of spirit, it immediately turns to making me mourn. We mourn about the fact that we are like this and we mourn about our sins for the things that we've done. Does anybody ever do self-examination? It's a practice that we have lost, I think, in our present day that is much needed. At the end of the day, recognizing, what have I done? What have I said? What have I thought? How have I behaved in respect to others? And this leaves us with a sense of grief, of sorrow, that we would even be capable of such things, of such thoughts, of such actions. And this leads us to mourning, especially when we realize, what is it in me? and the depth of brokenness in our hearts. And not only do we sense this in ourselves, but we also sense sense this in the world at large. Followers of Christ are not intentionally not reading the newspaper or not reading the news because we want to avoid all brokenness, not dealing with a real conversation with people in need, not going there. We just don't go there because we'd rather just live in our pretend little bubble that everybody's just happy, wealthy, and successful just like us. No, Christians aren't like that. True followers of Jesus are very aware of the world at large, and we see the unhappiness and the suffering of mankind, and we recognize the source of all brokenness comes to people's relationship with God, and we long for redemption. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He's not one who is eating and drinking and being merry. Don't dwell on those things. Everybody just avoid it. No, he was moved to the point of brokenness. And we are to be too, moved to the point of neediness and longing for change. But the promise here in verse 6, what is it? Excuse me, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Personally, we know that the person who mourns their sinful state is experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit and is certain to be led to the Lord Jesus, to salvation, to the cross, where we find real hope. But I will tell you, it's only the one who cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, like Paul in Romans 7, who can then cry out, oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. If we truly mourn, we shall rejoice. We shall be comforted. Though hopeless, we shall find hope. And this is the paradox. Like I said, great sorrow leads to great joy. But without the sorrow, there is no joy. And also those who are hope 
in Christ, not only experience it for what he will do with our sins, but also for the promise of a future hope. Romans chapter 8 says that in this present moment we groan, but the sufferings of this present moment are not even worthy to be compared with surpassing greatness of the glory that is to come. As we groan, we experience the burden of sin and the brokenness of this world. Some of us have been so hurt, so wounded. Too often in Christian circles, we want the testimony of people who are just totally done with their healing and their redemption, and they stand up and say, it's finished, everything. But do we recognize that there are many who are hurt, who have been wounded, and in this world it may never be fully healed. Yes, he's begun his work, but some of us may continue to groan. But let me tell you this, friends. There's coming a day that you will be comforted. There's coming a day that you will see your Savior face to face. There is a promise that is real, a glory that will be revealed that cannot even be described. There is coming a day that will dawn when sorrow and night will be no more. Christ will return. Sin will be banished, and you will hear him say, Behold, I have made all things new. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Quite the opposite, once again, of what the world says, is it not? World conquest, possession of the whole universe, given to who? The world would say the strong and the powerful. Jesus says, no. The world says strength, power, ability, aggressiveness, self-assurance. The more you assert yourself, express yourself, the more likely you are to succeed. And Jesus says, you don't know the path. I've come to bring the kingdom of God again. Those who are of my kingdom are not like this. They're of a different kingdom because they serve the true and living king. Yes, there's a logical connection here. First, poor in spirit, we're asked to recognize our own weakness and our own inability. Next, blessed are those who mourn, we realize our own sinfulness and our true nature, calling out, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am. But now something new, something different, and something greater. The third step here. As Jesus teaches us, blessed are the what? The meek. We're reaching a point at which we begin to be concerned about other people. See, I can see my own helplessness and nothingness in the face of God and the demands of the gospel and the law of God. I can be honest about my sin and my evil within me. I can face those things. But does anybody in the room find it difficult to allow other people to say those things about you? We prefer to condemn ourselves, don't we? <laughs> hey, let me talk about my sin. You don't point it out, please. Anybody ever? If you're married, you understand what I'm talking about. So far, we've been looking at ourselves, but now we begin to looking at other people and how they look at me and how I am in relationship with them as they do certain things to me. How do I react to that? That's what's going on here. Being meek means to allow people the opportunity to put the spotlight on me instead of 
me doing it myself. Who is like this? Abraham. Abraham with Lot, allowing the younger guy, Lot, to assert himself and to take first choice, and he does it without murmuring or complaining. Who is like this? The meek. Moses, described as the most meek and humble man on the face of the earth, lowliness, readiness, not to assert himself, but to abase himself with wonderful possibilities ahead of him as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he humbles himself completely, submitting himself to God and his will. Who does this? The meek. David with Saul. David knew he was to be king. He was informed that he was going to be king. He was anointed as king. And yet, look at how he suffered Saul and his unjust treatment of him, his unkind treatment of him. Who does that? The meek. Jeremiah, given a most unpopular message to preach. He was isolated, not popular. People did all kinds of bad things about him, talked about him behind his back. Jeremiah suffered greatly, and yet he continued to deliver the message of God without revenge, without retaliation. Who does this? The meek. Stephen, giving his life for the sake of Christ at the hands of Saul. Saul, that man who killed Stephen after coming to know Christ, became Paul and was a mighty man, but he willingly suffered at the hands of others, even unjustly. Who does this? Those who know God, who are marked by meekness. Jesus, our Savior, as he came, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek, I am lowly of heart. His whole life, his whole reaction to every people, the way he suffered persecution and scorn and sarcasm and derision, all of it shows meekness. Gethsemane, the entire scene is a scene of meekness. He did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but he humbled himself, became a servant, and even a servant going to the point of the cross. This is meekness. Behold your Savior. Do you love him? And do you want to be like him? Meekness is not a personality thing, no, because all Christians are to have it. And yes, many people who are described as meek people in the Scriptures, both men and women, are men of great strength, and yet they exhibit a heart of humility. So what is meekness? Meekness is a true view of oneself, expressed in attitude and respect, right conduct toward others. So it's two things, my attitude toward myself and then an expression of that attitude in relationship with other people. You can't be meek until you know you're a sinner, until you know your poverty and your sin. So now you understand why it's all connected. The meek man does not pride himself in himself or in any way glory in himself. He does not assert status like Philippians 2 describes. We are to be like Christ. We don't assert, assert status or power or privilege we're not sensitive to ourselves. We're not always watching our own interests. We're not defensive. We're no, not trying to protect ourselves. It means we're finished with ourselves. When we see ourselves, we know that nobody can say anything about us that's too bad because we know ourselves. We're mild and gentle and lowly. There's no spirit of retaliation, but there's a spirit of long-suffering. We're teachable. We are listeners to others. We leave our rights and our future in the hands of God. Blessed are the meek for what? They shall, what does it say? Inherit the earth. What does this mean? It means always satisfied. 
already content, having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't be jealous because all things are yours. Where does meekness come from? Knowing that all is already ours in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? In Romans chapter 8, he says, don't you know that your children and heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, you're going to inherit the earth? In 1 Timothy, he says, don't worry about suffering because if you suffer, you will reign with him. All of it's connected. Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How do you become meek? The Holy Spirit must come and make us new. Verse 6, Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This one again is related to the others and Probably, it's like the point at which uh, we're becoming less negative and more positive. Uh, We've been looking at ourselves and examining ourselves, but here we begin to look to the solution, and this is kind of the pinnacle, probably the most clear gospel statement in all of the attitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is the secret of happiness? Learning to hunger and thirst for the right thing. So many of us search for so many other things, but Jesus wants us to search for the right thing. Do you hunger and thirst for the right thing? For if you do, you will be satisfied. What is the right thing? Righteousness. It's so much more than just morality or respectability. We're talking about justification, sanctification, glorification. We're talking about being right with God. Three aspects dealing with all of them being right with God in terms of our sin, with the presence of sin, the power of sin, and the desire for sin. With the presence of sin, we recognize that sin creates a separation between us and God. And our desire is to be right with God. We know that the thing we need the most, the root of all of our troubles, is this disconnection between us and God. And we long for sin to no longer be a barrier between us and our God. We long for the forgiveness, the gift of God, which we call justification, that he would give us grace to be made right with him, not by what we do for him, but by what he has done for us in Jesus. We long to be right with God. We long to experience that intimacy that Adam and Eve did in the original garden, to long for sin to no longer keep us from the presence of the one who we were created to know and to love. Secondly, the power of sin. We long not only to be justified, to be made right with God, but we long for for sin to no longer have control over our hearts and over our lives. We want to get away from the power of sin and the power of the world's just temptations that tend to drag us down. Like Romans 7 talks about, we want to be free of the law of sin and death that we see at work in our members. And third, the desire for sin. The one who's truly honest, if y'all have ever been honest, and I know I have been, sometimes... You discover that you're in bondage of sin, but you also discover that not only are you in bondage of it, but you actually like it. Even though you know it's wrong, you still desire it. And the one who is of Christ longs to be delivered from not just the presence of sin and the power of sin, but even the desire for it. We long for our taste buds to be made new. So to be hungry and thirsting after righteousness, to be free from self, 
and to be free from sin. To put it positively, it means that we are to be positively holy. It means that we want to know Christ completely, and we want to be like him completely. That's what it means to hunger and to thirst for him, to walk in the light as he is in the light. Hungering and thirsting. I love the fact that Jesus uses this phrase because it means that we can't attain this by our own. It points to our consciousness of need, to the point of of real pain. It means that something continues until it's satisfied. Because see, Hosea told the people of Israel that they were always coming forward in the form of penitence. But then they were going back into sin. And that is not what it looks like to be positively holy in your life, to come forward in the form of penitence, but to go back in sin. And he describes, Hosea does to Israel, that her righteousness was like a morning cloud. It's here one minute, and then it's gone the next. And Jesus says, it's not so with my disciples, for my disciples are not here one minute, gone the next, but they are on a constant pursuit of more of me. Righteousness looks like a real thing in their lives. It's not a passing feeling. It is deep, and it is profound, and it increases until it's fully satisfied. They shall be filled, is the promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled This is the gospel here, the gospel of grace, the gift of God. When we're like this, he will fill us. Yes, as we repent and believe, he gives us rightness with him. We are forgiven and we are free, but it also continues. The Holy Spirit is presently at work changing our hearts and lives, making us conform to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And there is a day, friend, that we are promised in eternity to be made right completely. For those who are in Christ will stand in the presence of God, faultless before him, wrapped in garments, not of our own righteousness, but of his. All the blemishes will be gone, and a new and a perfect person and a perfect body will be given, and we will stand in the presence of God made new. Philippians 3 says, knowing that you will be made perfect, press on Let us go on toward perfection. The more one hungers and thirsts, the more one is filled. Are you satisfied? Are you longing for the right thing? Long for God. Next, we see Jesus says, blessed, verse 7, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, everything up to this point is almost like climbing up a mountain, and we've just reached the pinnacle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the, the solution, the filling of God. And the rest of these now kind of speak to the outworking of that filling of God in our life as we relate to the world that he's placed us in. He says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. What does this mean? It means more than like an easygoing temperament. Um, It means something of the Spirit of God. Compare it to grace. Grace is essentially associated with men because of their sins, but mercy is associated with men because of their misery. While grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. It's very important to distinguish. Mercy essentially means a sense of pity, a sense of compassion, combined with actions to actually relieve suffering. So it's pity plus action, compassion plus action. That's mercy. 
We see it displayed in the Good Samaritan. Jesus told this parable, the one who's been, poor man who's been robbed at the hand of robbers. Others see him. Maybe they feel compassion. We don't know, but we do know they move on. But the good neighbor is the one, the only one who's described as merciful, the one who feels compassion for the victim, but then goes across the road, sees what he needs, and then takes responsibility to do something for him. This is being merciful, not just feeling compassionate, but moving to action. Jesus is our Savior, our merciful Savior, who sees our pitiful state, sees our suffering, sees that it's because of our sin, and yet still he feels compassion and he moves into action to come and deal with us in our condition. Blessed are those who follow in the way of our merciful Savior. Blessed are those who are so moved by the mercy that they have been given that all they want is to show mercy as we have been shown it. To not be like the guy who was repaid debts we'll look at later in Matthew who goes out of being forgiven his debt and then demands that others collect, that he collects the debts of others. That man has no real understanding of the mercy he's been shown. We are not to be like that. We're to have an understanding of the mercy that we have been shown and likewise to show mercy as he has shown us mercy. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What it means here is that those who are truly merciful, that is the fruit that shows your real faith, your real understanding of his mercy. You are truly saved. You are truly evidencing that you have received the mercy of God as you show the mercy of God. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think it's very important that we hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in what? Heart. What does it mean here, heart? The gospel is all concerned about the heart. Yes, it evidences itself in the life, but the root of all of behavior, your behavior comes from your heart. And Jesus over and over emphasizes your heart. Over and over, Jesus confronts people like the Pharisees who says they're only interested in the outside, but yet they ignore the inside. The heart is the whole center of his teaching. It's not your head. It's not your externalities. It's not your conduct. It's your heart. Your heart needs something new. And Jesus says, blessed are those who in their heart are pure. Pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means this. It means without hypocrisy. It means to be single. Pureness of heart refers to a singleness of heart. It means like without folds, if you were a piece of paper, you would have no folds. Instead, you would be open. There would be nothing hidden. You could describe this as sincerity. It means a single-minded a single-hearted devotion. Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Single-hearted, fully open, pure. It also means to be cleansed. It means without defilement. 
in every respect that our supreme desire of life should be more of God. I want to know you and then know you more. And our Lord says, for those who are pure in heart, what is the promise? For they shall see God. The whole of the Christian message, the whole object of Christianity, why Jesus came, is to bring you into a place where you could once again see God. This is life that you might know God, that you might behold him again, that you might have the opportunity to see him for who he is. He's the best. Those who are single-hearted, who are cleansed of sin, have that opportunity to see him. And one of the greatest motivations of, I hope, your desire to be made more like him is the promise that in doing so, you will get to see him more. Do you have a longing to see God? It's a present experience for us who are walking with Christ, a greater awareness of who he is. And there's a promise for all of us who have trusted Christ that though right now we see through a glass dimly, there's coming a day that we will see face to face. John says, beloved, we're now sons of God, It doesn't appear yet what we will be, but when he does appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Does that excite you? Behold, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're reminded once more that we are not like the world. We are entirely different. We're entirely new. We belong to a different kingdom. We are to be peacemakers. Jesus over and over says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, you would see people out fighting for all kinds of things, but we're not like that. We are peacemakers. I am the prince of peace. Peacemakers are blessed because we are like Christ. The world looks at all the trouble and explanation as all kinds of things. Oh, man. What is the problem in our world today? People will give you all kinds of answers. But what we know is the real problem in our world today relates to people and where their hearts are with God. So much of our present political discourse, so much of our present even humanitarian work across the world and conversations and all this kind of stuff is that it's almost like we've got a problem with the source of the stream but yet we're downstream away trying to put chemicals in the water, trying to fix the problem. But peacemakers know that the, the source is the heart. And our chief aim is to see people to proclaim the gospel of peace so that once again, the reign of God might come into hearts, come into families, come into communities, come into nations, and then come into our world. We long for peace and we work for peace. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? It means that we're peaceable, we're not quarrelsome. But secondly, it means that we desire peace and we do all that we can to produce peace and to maintain it. We are ultimately concerned about people's peace with God. We know when not to speak. And so many of us, this is the area we need to grow. <laughs> Our primary concern is not one of politics. It's not one of race, it's not one of gender, 
It's not one of socioeconomic class. It's not one of job status or neighborhood. It's not one of any of the things that the world likes to divide people up about. No, we are primarily concerned with people's hearts with God. And as we look at people, we let go of all the worldly stuff and we just care about a person's heart, which means we learn not to speak. And it also means that in every situation, we view that situation in light of the gospel. We see and desire to see what are the implications of this situation and how can I pursue the peace of this person or this situation by helping people know more about the Prince of Peace, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we look for methods to bring peace. Every opportunity that we have, if we have an enemy, we look to feed him, we look to bless him, we look to pray for him, to reconcile with him. As far as it depends upon us and our actions, we seek peace. Now, what is the promise for those who are the peacemakers? What does it say? For they shall be what? Called sons of God. I love this because what it means is that God is going to own us as his own children. It means that the peacemaker is a child of God and is like his father. We are like God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Last but not least, I want to look at verses 10 and 11 as Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, he's describing a person who is like Christ and who behaves like Christ in a certain manner. He's basically saying, this is what is going to happen to you when you are in me and you follow me. Note that he is not saying blessed are the persecuted because they are objectionable. He's not saying blessed are those who are persecuted or having a hard time because they're difficult or they're annoying or they're foolish or they're acting in wrong ways or they're fanatical or overzealous. What he's saying is blessed are those who are persecuted because what? of righteousness' sake. What he's saying is being righteous looks like being like Christ, right? So he's saying is blessed are those who are persecuted for being like me. And those who are like Jesus will always be persecuted. Those who are like Jesus are never going to have every single person like them. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know it hated me. If you were of the world, they would love you, but you're not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world, therefore they hate you. In John 15, he says, the servant is not greater than his Lord, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Second Timothy, Paul says, yes, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Whether it's like Abel persecuted by Cain or Moses or David, persecuted by Saul, or Elijah, or Elijah, or Daniel, or Hannah, 
They were persecuted, not because they were difficult, not because they were overzealous, but because they were righteous, because they were people of God. Jesus himself is our chief example in his perfection, in his gentleness, in his meekness, in his love, in his grace, in his compassion. No one, the world has never seen anyone so gentle, so right, so godly, so kind. And yet look what happened to him. And look what the world did to him. It's what happened with him, and it's happened with many saints who have gone before us, many missionaries around the world today, many godly people here in Memphis. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs, he repeats again, he starts and closes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rule, the reign of God is evident in their heart and their life. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are to be one who is different. You are to be one whose primary concern is to do everything for the sake of Christ. You should be concerned to be living your life to be well-pleasing in His sight. For Christ's sake is my motivation. And you are to be one whose thoughts are primarily controlled by the thoughts of heaven and the thoughts of the world to come. Consider the men and the women who have gone before us. Even Jesus himself, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And men and women who have gone before us in the faith don't live primarily for this life, but we live for the one to come. Yes, we enjoy life now in Christ, but we also know that this life is not it. We have a promise of a life that is to come. Hebrews 11 describes people who are looking for a city that has foundations, who's not in this world, but whose builder and maker is God. And we long, long for that. And we live for that. And therefore, we do not retaliate. We do not retaliate. We do not even resent persecution. nor are we depressed by it. Rather, we rejoice. We are exceedingly glad. How? How is this possible? Because in our persecution, we are proving that we are children of God. We are identifying with Christ, and we are building a greater hope of heaven. Friends, this is a picture this is a picture of what Jesus proclaims. He came to bring the kingdom of God. But what does this kingdom look like? His kingdom takes root within you. He has come to establish the reign of God in your heart and your life again. And Jesus sits down on the mountain to invite his disciples and to invite you to really take a look and see practically what it looks like to have God at the center of your heart and life again.
he shows you a picture of the character of the one who truly has experienced his kingdom. And he says, this is the promise. This is the pathway to happiness. And I just want to ask this morning, you know, this is a picture we've talked about of the character of one who's experienced the reign of Christ, but is this a picture of you? That's what I want to know this morning. And as our worship team comes and we move to a time of response, I just want, to, I just want you to consider where in this do you find yourself? And I told you at the beginning, there's two things. There's two things that I really believe Jesus invites you to do as you hear the Beatitudes. One is to grow in love with him. I told you at the very beginning of this, the Beatitudes are not meant to say, live like this and then become a Christian, but rather, once you are a Christian, you are to live like this. And I told you the Beatitudes are meant to lead you to a greater awareness of the gospel. They're meant to lead you to understand how far we fall short and how desperate we need change in our hearts and lives. We need to be made new by the Spirit of God, and we can because of Jesus, the one who teaches is the one who saves. And he invites you today to behold him, to behold him and to worship him and to grow in love with him for all of the descriptions that he gave are who he is. And he is wonderful and he's come not only to teach, but primarily to save. Grow in love with him. But secondly, I told you, it's to grow in likeness of him. Today, you've heard from Jesus about what it looks like practically to really experience the restoration of the reign of God in your heart and life. And I wonder today if you're willing to be open and laid bare before him to evaluate as the Spirit of God speaks to you his words, to really say, oh, Jesus, I want to be like you. I surrender my heart. I just... I long for these things to be characteristic of me. Thank you that you're presently at work in me by your spirit. And I'm praying now that you work in a greater way that I might be more like you as you've invited me to follow you.